Hello and welcome to the Humanizing Growth podcast series, brought to you by the Institute for Real Growth. Each week, IIB founders Frank von den Driest and Mark de Swan-Arons will be talking to global leaders and practitioners to discuss what it takes to drive human-centric growth. For more information, visit www.instituteforrealgrowth.com. Good morning, afternoon, and evening to all the viewers from all over the world. My name is Frank van den Driest, co-founder of the Institute for Real Growth, and with great pleasure and, and also pride, I'm introducing today Lubomira Rochet. She is a executive team member of L'Oreal, a company that was only last week called a standout performer by The Economist. And in her role as chief digital officer, she is very much at the forefront of of guiding and navigating L'Oreal through these massive changes and shifts that we see happening all around us. Lubomira, a very warm welcome. And let me begin by asking you two questions. Where are you? Always interesting in these uh, virtual meetings. And maybe you can give me one word that describes how you feel at this very moment. Hello, Frank. Hello, everyone. A warm welcome from Clichy. So Clichy is in the suburbs of Paris. It's where the headquarters of L'Oréal is sitting. So I'm at the office and the mood is um, sunny. Listen, uh, Lubomira, we were connected through somebody that's in our CMO leadership program, a colleague of yours, Lex Bradshaw-Zanner. And Lex, by the way, talked extremely highly of you as a leader, as a visionary, but more than anything as a human being, which, by the way, more people that I spoke to in your environment mentioned, will definitely talk about that, uh, how you bring humanity in, in leadership and in transitions like you lead. Luomira, I've been really looking forward to this conversation um, more than anything to learn from the digital transformation journey that, that you're on. So, so that's what we'll definitely talk about and also how to humanize uh, that, that journey and how you see and what your lessons are in the collaboration with marketing. So digital transformation at L'Oreal. Could you tell me when and maybe even where that journey has started? So I think that one of the first e-commerce websites that were launched in the company was 1999. It was Lancôme US, Lancôme US, if my memory is correct. So um, in a way, digital has been part of, uh, of the atmosphere in L'Oréal for quite a long time. And then another very milestone moment was in 2010, when Jean-Paul Lagon, our, our CEO, and who just passed the, yeah. the torch to uh, Nicolas Hieronymus, who, who is our new CEO since uh, three days. Um, so Jean-Paul Lagon in, in 2010 declared uh, that the year of digital, and he said even it's a, the state of emergency for digital, l'état d'urgence in French. And so uh, what he felt in 2010, which was in fact visionary, is that digital will change not just the marketing, not just the communication, maybe not just the way we interact with our consumers, but it will change profoundly the business model of the, of the company. And that I think was very visionary. And then what happened is in a very L'Oréal way, for those who know a bit the company, Jean-Paul often refers to the creative chaos of the, of the company. Um, it's th thousands of initiatives started to emerge from countries, from brands. And so everybody got like really excited about, about digital. And at some point in 2012, my, my path uh, crossed uh, Jean-Paul's. I was working at a, at a digital agency called Valtech at the time. Um, and, uh, and he asked us, Valtech, not like McKinsey or BCG or Bain or like a yeah. you know, high caliber strategy consulting firm to help him accelerate, understand how he could accelerate this transformation for the group. And so in 2014, long story short, I joined. And then the whole idea was based on all these uh, organic, 
bottom-up initiatives that emerge from 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 a lot of places in the in the group to create a strategy, a direction, and a direction that would create an impact uh, for the business uh, at at large. So this is how this is when it started. I would say 1999, first website. 2010, Jean-Paul Abon declaring the year of digital, and 2014 when I was privileged and blessed to be chosen to uh, to lead this transformation, and it has been just a story of amazing acceleration since uh, since then. Yeah, seven years. That's uh, for such a massive transformation. Uh, it's on the one hand it might sound short, but for you to be constantly, you know, telling people to do differently things differently. I can imagine that, uh, that that those are seven uh, very intensive years. They were. When, when in those seven years was the first time that you thought, okay, I think I'm getting it right. I think, you know, we took the right turn here. We, we are onto something good. I think um, several memories, occasions, the first thing is, when we crafted the the digital strategy uh, for the group and it was interesting because it was really about it was very 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 basic in fact very basic it was simple memorable um and so the question was what is digital actually really changing for our business right yeah. so what what the what digital was actually really changing is that it was lowering the barriers to entry uh in our in our industry because you know, the biggest competitive advantage of, 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 of a company like L'Oréal or others in this field is not essentially in the order, but it's one RNI, research and innovation, uh, very powerful research and innovation teams. It's a beauty is, a, is an industry driven by innovation. So you really yeah. have to have strong RNI teams. The number two is, of course, media, which was the way to create impressions and, uh, and, 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 and memory and, and brand, uh, and brand awareness, of course. And number three is distribution at scale. All the partnerships you, you, you were able to, uh, to make and to, to deal with, uh, with a lot of distributors. And so when, when digital really, uh, become a big force in, in beauty, what happened was that you could, you could start a brand from your garage, uh, working with third party vendors to, to, to make your skincare line. You could, you could do that. Mm-hmm. When the social networks essentially uh, developed, people were growing brands purely organically or, you know, through influence. So you didn't need those big media budgets. And number three, you could go D2C or you could you could go on 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 alternative platforms, e-commerce platforms where you didn't have to patiently build, you know, the dozens and dozens of years of relationship of space shelf and stuff with with classical distribution. So this is what happened. And so. We were like, okay, so that's that's the issue, uh, that's the challenges, and what is the opportunity? And the opportunity, we really started from looking at the consumers and what they were what they were doing. Number one thing was it was 2014, and in 2014 we were doing like two percent, two percent of our revenues in in ecom. That sounds like a century ago, and uh, and what we were seeing is that people were actually really willing to buy beauty online, which was not a given because everyone was like, you know, when you when you buy beauty, you have to touch, you have to smell, you have to try. You, re- it's it's a very sensorial uh, category, and uh, our number one challenge was to say yes, uh, e-commerce gonna grow and it's gonna grow significantly in the in the coming years. So we set to ourselves the goal, following our consumers' behavior, to reach twenty percent of our sales into e-com. By 2020, we reached 27. So that was the first big bet. The second big thing we observed was that people, consumers were really willing, wanting to have a more personalized relationship with, with the brands. Personalized meaning not only product, you know, not, not only personalized product, but personalized relationship, personalized communication, personalized advertising, personalized marketing. So this is why we embarked in our second big strategic uh, battle, which was data-driven marketing. The more insights we were collecting into, uh, into consumers' wants, needs, and behaviors, the better we could optimize and personalize our marketing. And the number three objective was to, uh, was to transform the marketing model from a, 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 an advertiser, a 30-second TVC master, into embracing uh, new forms of marketing, especially content, especially influence, peer-to-peer advocacy, um, services, 
all of those new ways to connect to consumers. And this has been the 20, 50, 100, so 20% e-commerce, 50% personalized relationship and 100% love brands, digital love brands. Yeah. The 20, 50, 100 has been simple, memorable. And I think today you can ask to any employee of L'Oréal, they will know about it. And it was three objectives, not 10,000. That's usually the problem when you do transformations. You have like 10 game changers, seven strategic levers, like nobody understands anything at the end. So you have three objectives, three very memorable figures. And that's the way we started to embark everybody behind us. That's, that's really interesting. I, I, I was going to ask you because, because you were obviously not the only ones realizing, hey, this digital thing, we, we need to do something. And, and, you know, you hear all these companies that, that throw billions of dollars investing in becoming digital, putting really high, steep ambitions of changing into direct to consumer relationships and so on. I was wondering, what is it that's, that L'Oreal, that you do differently to what all the others have been doing? So I cannot speak for the others, but I know that for one thing, and I've been working in an agency before, so I've been exposed to other industries, other companies. Yes. And the thing that is striking with L'Oréal is how culturally the company is fit for change, how culturally the, com the company embraces change with, with grace and enthusiasm. Change is not perceived as something negative. And by the way, it's, it's interesting because our CEO, Jean-Paul, ex-CEO, Jean-Paul, um, it's, a, it's a particular moment because uh, it's really like now the change of guard. Yeah. Um, he never, ever said uh, that digital was a threat, a disruption, a, 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 something negative. He always was very optimistic, positive, like it was all about the opportunities, all about the new competitive advantages that we will gain through it, all about the magnificent consumer interactions and, 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 and personalized interactions we will be able to get. It was all about growth in terms of uh, creating a new channel with e-commerce, uh, connecting to consumers we could not touch in like tier three, four, five cities in China. Yes. And so it has always been a story of growth. That's super interesting that actually, and Lex will know that, that uh, in, in this week's, sessions that we've been doing running in our in our leadership program we talk about an open culture as a building block for driving sustained humanized uh, growth and the open culture one of the key characteristics is that these cultures embrace more change entrepreneurship and innovation exactly what what you are describing um, you know, if I if if I may, sometimes I, I compare it to the metabolism of an organism of a, of a, of a body. Um, what is interesting is the more you do, the the fittest you 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 are, and and I think this this capacity to metabolize change will be really the thing that will differentiate the companies in the in the future because digital transformation has been this big moment, but today the digital or like tech led you know yeah. transformation is diffracting in many sub things. Yeah. And like the only thing that is business as usual is transformation today. And I, and, I, and I think that really this capacity to metabolize change and to and to accelerate in the capacity to, to embrace faster and faster, not one, but several transformation at the same time will be, I think in the future, a key differentiator be between like uh, successful and uh, uh, the companies and the others. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And this, especially this whole almost making experimentation part of your DNA, just trying things and also allowing uh, people to fail. So that's what we talk about in our program a lot, uh, since it's mostly CMOs in the program. You know, what can they do? And we talk about, you know, I know, creating fail boards and putting your own name on it just to show that it's okay to make mistakes. What would your recommendation be? for CMO and other growth leaders to do or to foster exactly the kind of culture you're describing, uh, you were just describing? So several, several ways of, of answering here. One is, if I, if I refer to my experience in L'Oréal, one very interesting thing uh, is that L'Oréal is a very strategically concentrated company, but very operationally decentralized company. Yeah. 
And this is, I don't know if it's a good or bad thing. Well, I think it's a good thing, in fact, uh, because at the end of the day, to, at the end of the day, I mean, today, really, like the, the ecosystem, when we think of digital, right, for example, the ecosystem between like Korea and China and the US, the UK, uh, you know, um, Russia, Africa, I mean, you can have some big global GAFA, you know, people and, and platforms, but at the end of the day, the, 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 uh, the, the ecosystems, the behaviors, the way you shop in China is very different from the way you shop in, 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 in France. And, and all of that really militates, I think, for having a strong decentralized capacity to test, to test. And, and it was interesting because I was, I was coming in seven years ago in a global role. Yeah. And so in a global role, in a very decentralized company, my first question was like, what am I going to do? You know, because, you know, the power in a way is in the countries, in the brands. And so, um, and so quickly, I understand, I understood that what was important is one, to put your ego completely aside, because that's not the question, to, to really foster and leverage the capacity of innovation of, 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 of all the places. But, because there's a but here, if, if you do only that, um, you, you become a, a circus of, of test and learn and of POC, like proof of concept, and then you never scale anything. But the moment you know you have, you are on something, yeah. then you have to scale it big. And this is, this is where, um, this passage, this passage between like the test and learn approach and, and, and it's cool to the scaling, um, is, is the, is the most subtle and, and difficult one in big organizations like ours, I guess. Can you give me an example and just an example that maybe the leaders that are listening now can identify with? Because I'm really looking at what is it that they can do? It's so you said one thing, identify that opportunity. Hey, we've got something here. Now we need the muscle of global to leverage this. And, and what is it that you did personally? Because indeed, I can see you in a global role with lots of responsibility and often very little authority. What did you do to make it happen? So I would say num- number one, in terms of a- an example, the first example that comes to my mind is is TikTok. TikTok, yeah. you know, has been a has been a massive force uh, in the in the recent two years. The first time I saw ByteDance in Shanghai was three four years ago. I was like, this is gonna be big. Um, this is gonna be real big, because you could feel that the platform was crafted and designed in a very smart way from the UI, from the user interface to the user experience, to the data piece, to the recommendation, to the, I mean, all of that, to the algorithm, all of that was making so much sense that sometimes in life you're like, that's going to work. Yeah. And I mean, it, it doesn't happen a lot, but when it, I mean, to me, it happened that, that yeah. time. And so long story short, of course, TikTok became a big thing. We've had had, in terms of marketing playbook, several revolutions in the past, 10 years. So it's it's all about discoverability, how our consumers are going to discover our brand. So we had the big TV moment, then we had the big search moment, and then you started to have like a video becoming a big thing. Then you had to have like the social networks becoming a big thing. And then you have another kind of social network, which is TikTok becoming. So you have had waves of, of innovation and every platform has its own creative codes. And this is something that many companies didn't get at first. Everybody was like, oh, you know, that was a debate five years ago, four, five, four years ago. Oh, you know, Facebook, those guys, they suck, like uh, viewability is so low. Of course, if you put your 30-second TVC on a platform where the consumption time is like two to five seconds, of course, your viewability is going to suck because the way your content has been built has been built for a TV set and not at all for a platform that is flowing and, uh, and a very short so this is where we, we we experimented a lot with new contents in some countries and we learned about what works, what doesn't work. So we knew like very concrete things. We knew that if you don't put your brand and your product pack pack in the first second on a on a on a Facebook ad, it's not gonna make any impression. People are not going to remember anything. So we we tested like dozens of parameters in terms of content that works, content that doesn't work. And what we did for Facebook, which which was the, the GIF moment, like this was like, how do you create your advertising like a GIF? We were we were retesting with uh, with TikTok recently, and the way you build content for TikTok is completely different. It's really you're 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 passing the, you're moving from GIF to memes. Yeah. So how as a marketer, 
should I think of a content that can be culturally so relevant, a movement, a, mu a movement, uh, a posture, um, a, a, a dynamic, a music that can be so culturally relevant that it becomes a meme. And this is a completely different way of thinking about your content as a marketer. And this we test in a, in a handful of countries. And when we know data-driven based, what works, what doesn't work, we scale it through what we call the golden rules. So we test, we learn on the platforms, on the content, and then we create golden rules in terms of like, like what are the three golden rules that you have to respect on Facebook or on TikTok. And then we scale it overall across the board to all the countries so that when you are in another country than the test country for TikTok and that you deliver content for TikTok, you, you know what works because other countries would have gone through it before and then uh, you can benefit from the collective knowledge. I don't know if it's uh, clear. It's very clear. I was wondering, has there also ever been resistance to golden rules late, you know, dictated from, from Paris? To... They were never dictated from Paris. Uh, they were how never dictated from created? Paris because, sorry? How, how did they get created? They get created because we test in a, in a given country. Yeah. Um, and we test with the brand and with the country's teams. So it's not something that's, that's coming from the center, but it's something coming from a common experiment yeah. where, where we frame the methodology in a way, where we, we give support to the, to the teams and, uh, and then it can be circulated. So it's never coming from Paris or, or center, but it's coming from, uh, from a natural real life, you know, experiment taking place in different countries with different brands. And this is how we scale it after. And that's also what probably keeps the resistance low to zero. Lower, let's yeah. say lower. What have you come up in those years as the biggest blocker to the transformation and the change that you've been driving in, in, in the organization? I would say the the biggest blocker is depends on the companies. Maybe some of you guys know um, the ADCAR model. ADCAR is a very uh, famous uh, change management model, A being awareness, uh, D being desire, K being knowledge, A being I don't remember, and R being reinforcement. I don't remember that. I will find out. If someone in the chat can find out what the A is, let us know. <laughs> so it's ADCAR. Yeah. And in fact, depends on the company. Sometimes the, the A, the awareness is a, is a big battle. Uh, so this is the whole evangelization phase of like why digital is important, why it matters. In L'Oréal, in a way, I was lucky because it was one easy, two almost done by our CEO, and uh, and so uh, and and so that was not the the the, the key point. D as desire, desire for change. Again, in L'Oréal, it's a it's a cultural force that. Yeah. That is pretty favorable. In other companies, it's not the case. So you have to create that desire by showing. A Example, um, what we did also in this phase of desire creation in L'Oréal is that it's a it's it's a quite competitive culture. So we took like uh, countries um, uh, in 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 the beginning. We took some countries like Canada, for example. It was a great country for us because Canada was willing to test a lot of things. And then when they were successful, we were showing the, ca the Canadian case on e-commerce or on on marketing or on data. And everybody was like, "Oh yeah, I want I want to do the same, and I want to do even a better case than Canada." So it created this this whole desire for sh for shining, which is positive in in a, in a company. And then the K being knowledge, this is where really uh k and a because i think it's ability ability, uh, ability somebody posting that <laughs> it came back to my mind after um so the k and a were are really the critical phase of the of every transformation because what happens you are in a company that is like the the queen of marketing you know it's like png unilever those, those companies are really like schools for marketing and you're coming saying like we need to transform a bit our marketing model. And so first, you have to be uh, legitimate to say that. And second, you, you end up with telling people who have been doing something very well and very successfully for so many years mm -hmm. that they should do things differently. And even worse than that, that they do things that they are not good naturally at. They don't even know where to start from. They, they don't know what's important, what's not important. They don't know the KPIs. And so they feel not only frustrated by the fact that their core expertise is not as valorized as before, but also because they will be judged on something that they feel 
naked about. And so the K and the A is really where we put 80% of the effort. I've, I've always said that digital transformation in general, digital transformation is not about technology, it's about people. It's a people first thing. And this is where we did like basically three things. First thing is to recruit. When I came in, it was 200, a community of 200 people digital. Today, it's a, a 3,500 people community. So we recruited people who knew how to do, who had the expertise and the ability and the knowledge to do. The second thing is we massively upskilled our L'Oréal colleagues, massive. So we upskilled 52,000 people. In the past year, with the COVID, we created a full masterclass series. We are like broadcasting live from, from the office here every week. And we've created really uh, engaging, fascinating content around many aspects of the transformation. So we've skilled 52,000 people, which is a lot. And three, organization, organizational design. And, and here, if I can take one minute just to, because that was a very key aha moment, where in 2014, we had two choices. Either we build a specific silo of hardcore, deep experts into the digital stuff, yeah. e-commerce, CRM, uh, and, and this is great because this goes fast because those, those guys understand each other, they go fast, they know what they do, and, and it's, it's a fast way to get to transformation. Sorry, to digital delivery, but it's not a fast way to get to transformation because transformation is not about getting good at digital with good digital people. It's transforming all the others. So we decided not to create the silo, but to embed digital within all the functions. Yeah. And when we decide to do that, it's interesting because everybody hates you at the, at, in, in, yeah. instantly. The, the, the digital people, because they feel that they are not extraordinary any, anymore because they have to report to those guys. And the marketing people who like, ah, or the commercial people who like, yeah, I have to manage people. I don't really understand. I don't even know that what their job is. And by the way, it's so different. And by the way, uh, if, if I'm a sales guy, like it accounts for 2% of my chiffre, of my revenue, like it's nothing. So why should I bother? So you create this instant <laughs> problem. <laughs> but, but it's the best long-term way to transform because everybody upskills every everybody else and the digital people upskill the marketing people but the marketing people upskill the digital people into the beauty business yeah. and so this is virtuous i think this is this is super critical and i know everybody in our program totally recognizes this this tension what is it that you did? What, what intervention, or maybe you didn't, but other people did it, is to overcome that resistance of having these digital experts all of a sudden sitting you know, on the desk next to me, being very different, only 2%, da, da, da. and the, the experts not feeling very at home in, a, in, in an, uh, I don't know, a business unit where nobody speaks uh, his or her language. What did you do to overcome that? When my mom uh, asks me what I'm doing for a living, I'm saying like uh, PowerPoints and translation. No, I'm kidding. But translation is an important one because what I'm really doing is the translation between digital people and business people. And this is this is one, one part. And you should have a translator in your organization. So it should be someone. Someone should take that job of, of translating. And it's an interesting thing because if I think about it, translation is all about translating consumer trans into experiences it's all about translating uh, an expert language i remember my first meeting with jean-paul agon nicolas Yerenimus, and all the comex talking about tagging about tagging and cookies that was that was a tough one that was a tough one and they were like why should i bother like why are you are you talking to me and i was like yeah you have to understand that of course you don't have to become a specialist of that but you have to understand that because that's critical to build infrastructure of this digital thing. So being a translation and creating a common language simplify the words so that everybody feels at ease and not and not create a culture of estrangement, uh, but create a culture of commonality. So build a common language. Is, this is why I'm insisting on the translator part. It's really, really massively important. One, translation. Two, I would say it's a posture thing. If you come in like, ah, you know, I'm the CDO, uh, I'm the representative of the modern world, and you're the guys from the past, uh, you know, ancient world. I mean, it's awful. One, it's awful from a human perspective, because those guys have been doing the growth for 
110 years. Uh, they are delivering 20% net for 110 years, and they know their business much better than you. So please stay at your place. So that's that's humanly not possible. And it doesn't serve your transformation because it antagonizes everybody. So it's not the us versus them. It's it's not the modern and the ancients. It's us together. You upskill me on beauty. I upskill you on, on digital. So there's a deal. There's a deal there. And the number three, uh, I would say, is agenda setting. That's uh, that's massively important. It can seem like a detail, but it's massively important. The moment Jean-Paul Agon decides that at every country visit, so Jean-Paul used to used to travel every two weeks. He was visiting a country, and so all the countries were were of course mobilized to show all the progress, all the the key uh, action points, and and everything. And so when he decides, because I, I I really push hard on this one, that at every country visit, the number two topic after corporate presentation by the country manager is digital transformation for two hours. Lex can tell you about that. Every country needs to to show up to the to the challenge. So it mobilizes the energy of, of everybody and creates the momentum. Yeah, I think implicitly you're also indicating something extremely important is the fact that the CEO had your back and helped you push that agenda. Because I think that's, is that something that you negotiated up front or that you sensed up front or that, you know, if you'd go in another role, that you would first really check that that that's the case? Uh, it's it's number one. I mean, culture, culture, the the, the ability of the culture to uh, to change and yeah. the support of your CEO, like that's the, the two biggest prerequisites for for a successful transformation. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And I, I sensed it since day one. And I sensed that it was not just like, ah, oh, you know, it's, it's digital is cool. Like everybody's talking about it. Like, no, it was not that. It was, I know me, Jean-Paul Agon, I know that this is going to change my business. And so the moment where a CEO understands that digital is not like, is not an expertise, but it's the way business is run today. Because at the end of the day, uh, I, I've always said we cannot, we cannot speak of digital marketing. It's marketing at a digital age. Yeah. And the moment where your CEO understands that, he will, he will, he will support you. He will support you on, on, on the journey. This series is called the Humanizing Growth Series. And what we mean with humanizing growth is that basically you shift away from a short-term focus on shareholder value creation only to a longer-term value creation for all the different stakeholders. Uh, let, let's let's through that lens look at L'Oreal. What are your key stakeholder groups? Um, consumers, employees, communities, the planet, the future generations, the ones that are not there but are waiting for us and uh, for us to take the right decisions. And yeah, and, share, and, and shareholders. I don't know if it's in the right order, but I, I tend to say yes. I, I was going to comment on that. I, 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 that's an order I like. <laughs> no, well, we could have a whole discussion on that. But uh, so looking at the interests of all and, and value of all these different stakeholders, where do they align? Value creation. Value creation is where you can you can align. I believe in value creation, and I believe in alignment of incentives. Okay, so tell me what. So I'm not 100 clear. Tell me what you mean with value creation, because what I meant is the interest or value defined by one stakeholder might be different to that of other stakeholders. Yep. And where I was going to go is where do you see commonality? So value for one is equals value for the other. And where do you see difference? I think that it's true that the definition of, of value is different from one, one, one stakeholder to another. For example, for consumers, it's all about, in our case, the product we deliver to them, the utility we have in their lives, and all about the service and the experience we provide to them uh, while consuming our, our, our products. I think that's, that's, that's one. For the, for the employees, it's, it's really about it's really about being in a workplace where you feel people believe in you so much as to take bets, as to make you grow and to and to see you as a, a potentiality and not just as someone who did that before. I think that's 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 really important. That's really important. The planet and the future generation is, I think, uh, pretty clear. 
we need we need to leave something in a in a better in a better shape than what we what we found, and the shareholders that's also pretty clear. Pretty cool. Yeah. Well, you could you could argue whether shareholders are are better off with a long term or short term focus, but that that's a whole different kind of burns. But uh, but so what I'm really interested in is how do you balance those different interests? I personally believe that it all starts with the employees because what is what is interesting is that if you the employees is the is the fuel, in fact, but in a very positive way. It's the it's the energy more than the fuel. It's the energy that that will drive and orient all the all the effort of a, of a company towards common good. If your employees feel bad, then the energy will not flow in the in the in the right direction. If your employees are afraid, if your employees are anxious, yeah. if your employees don't believe in the in the purpose of what you are doing, there will be, you know, I've, I've, I've studied sociology in my, in, my, in my early years, and one book stood with me, and I don't remember the, the name of the, of the writer, but it was Exit, Voice, or Loyalty. So th those are the three, the three types of, you know, reaction one can have uh, versus a problem. In many cases, when there are problems, few people raise their voice within the company, Many exits, and many are going to conform and to comply uh, towards uh, towards going on. So, for me, the, the the biggest thing as in terms of a long term health of of a company is to avoid the ABC syndrome: arrogance, number one; bureaucracy, number two; and complacency, number three. Because when you have that, you're really in deep shit, and and your employees are absolutely key in maintaining a healthy metabolism for the effort of the of the of the company and then when you have that you can you can start to think about the value you create for your for your consumers through your product or your services you can start to really have a, a positive impact uh, in the world you can start uh, to behave in a mutually in a mutually expensive way with your communities your partners your ecosystem and um and and you can provide returns to your shareholders but i i, I think the if i think in terms of energy cycle yeah. the number one for me the chicken and the egg the employees are number one yeah. interesting do you ever talk with shareholders about this topic is this something you discuss with your peers in the board oh shareholders? yeah yeah we discuss it, and we've made a, a, a big cultural transformation in, in L'Oréal because, you know, as as many companies, we've had our our culture, and 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 with any culture, you have a very positive things, things that are a little bit like uh, ingrained in the in history, let's say. Yeah. Um, and uh, and Jean Paul uh, called this transformation simplicity, and it was all about uh, adapting the culture to a very modern, transparent, horizontal world. Which I, I guess this is the world we live in, mm -hmm. and and I think that was a that was a very healthy exercise. That was a very healthy exercise. Uh, a lot of people spoke out, which I think was was very interesting and needed. And so yes, we we have really started from the employee culture. It's interesting. You you mentioned the word that really struck with me was mutuality, and I'm just thinking if I think mutuality, and let's talk about your consumers, for example, with digital you get so much more information. And if you're well-intended, which I know you are, you translate it into a better experience for that consumer. Do you also use digital for consumers to know more about you? Yes, we do. So for example, we have in beauty, we have a, a very strong you know, societal debate around, for example, uh, ingredients. You know, ingredients like in food, you know, in beauty, we have had a, a lot of conversations, a lot of conversations happening without us. Huh? It's uh, happening in the in the open, in the internet and stuff. And, uh, and that has uh, inspired us as a, as a company. And we have uh, really decided to go uh, for a very transparent approach. So if you go to, uh, it's not on all our websites yet, we're rolling it out. But in, in many instances, when you when you have a product page with the ingredient list, you can you can scroll. And have a clear description of not only all the ingredients because that's a regulatory ask, so it's just compliance, but explanation on why this ingredient is used, 
sometimes uh, challenged ingredients like parabens, etc., or alcohol. I mean, why they are used in specific formula? And so I think it's it's really also using digital technologies to inform, to educate, and to and and to have a debate around things that are that are a subject of bigger debate in the in the society. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I couldn't agree more. And I think that should be really purpose-led. Uh, companies that are most successful do this in a very purpose-led way. You know, last week I read, I heard a name that I never heard. You, you might have known or, or not. Uh, maybe it's it's a Dutch phenomenon. I don't know because I'm in the Netherlands. There's a lady called Esther Olofsson. Did you hear of her by any no, chance? No. no. She's an influencer and she, um, she has 45,000 uh, followers uh, who are really engaged uh, with her. The thing that really surprised me was uh, I read that Esther doesn't exist. It's a virtual person. And, and I thought of the conversation we were going to have. And I thought, um, you know, that's, that's, there's so many sites. Right? So I, there's black or white views are not you know, very useful in this circumstance. But I guess as a CDO, you're also really involved in discussions around you know, ethical standards and so on. Could you see L'Oreal working with Esther Olofsson or any other virtual influencer? It's a, it's a, it's a good question. It's a, it's a topic that is on the, on, the, on the table. It's a complicated topic because once Esther, that's right, Esther, once Esther is, for one, for one Esther is a virtual person. So in a way, uh, in a way she's, taking, uh, she's taking away, we could see that as taking away a part of humanity a part of uh, having a human interaction and it's also can be seen as a as a lie which which you know it's something that is a you cannot build a relationship on a lie right so that's one part the the other part is that in in the world we live in sometimes having a virtual person is easier in terms of relatability and representativity than having a me or an asian girl or uh, a person coming from from Africa, so who, you know, yeah. how are we going to solve for that problem? Because now the communities are more and more uh, siloed. Uh, the communities, some communities, some person within communities want to be represented by by people who don't look like them. Some people will want to be represented by only people who look like them. It's so personal. And this is something that you cannot code. I, I don't see how we can code that within an, an algorithm. So having virtual avatar or people like that can be also a way of neutralizing many debates. So I don't have a clear-cut answer. And, and, it's a, and it's a very profound question that we have not solved, but there are many angles. And I, I love to see in the chat if you, if you think of other angles from which to approach that. Because I, again, I don't think it's a, it's a black and white thing. Well, I think the disadvantage of a global company, because, yeah, you've got very empowered local local uh, marketers and, and digital experts, and they might, for all you know, somebody in uh, Romania is creating one uh, on behalf of, of L'Oreal, much cheaper also. So I think a set of clear principles is the only, is, is the only value you can add, like your golden rules that you talked about earlier. And, and I think that transparency... Yeah. Is something I would say that to solve so many of those issues and, and challenges we'll have a f a f in front of us, I tend to believe that transparency and optionality, I would say, could be could be two avenues, two important avenues. Slightly or related to this, in the fifties, everyone knew Marilyn Monroe, and it was very clear what what the beauty standard was. In this digital age, do you believe that digitization uniforms the beauty ideal or actually uh, diversifies it? Ah, that's, that's such a good question. I think it does, it does both. Number one, digital, because you have so many people, like I described, trying to reverse engineer what works, what doesn't work in terms of content, in terms of imagery, in terms of... You end up, it struck me one day, it was funny, it was two, three years ago, we were working hard on our Instagram feeds, trying to understand what works, what doesn't work. And at some point, we were like deep into like the analytics and stuff. And, and we had like very clear guidelines and golden rules in terms. And suddenly I took a, a step back and I was looking at, at my Instagram feed. I was swimming in an ocean of sameness. It was so anxiogen. It was, I was so anxious. Like it was an ocean of sameness. Yeah. So that's one, one path. Yeah. Um, the other path, which is radically the opposite, 
is that digital platforms and all the the tools that go with them because if you if you if you think of TikTok the amazing power of TikTok is that it gives to regular people to you and me the the means almost of a of a cinema producer of the 50s so it gives not only the 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 platform but also the tools the creative tool to the mass to create content to portray different types of you know beauty if we talk, if we talk about beauty so you have both opposing forces that are coming at the same at, at the same time a huge homogenization on one side and especially from a marketing angle like a traditional marketing angle and a huge diversity when when you look at the prosumers the consumers that are creators the creators on the on the other side and i think this this calls at the end of the day for authenticity that's really where all of us marketers will have to make a huge effort in the years to come to go for less produced content, at least for one part of, of our production, for less produced content, for more authentic uh, voices, for more authentic figures, bodies, faces, and to really understand that at the end of the day, beauty and especially categories like makeup, for example, or color in general, is a magnificent way for us to empower people to represent their own identity. Yeah. And and it's really both. So this is the tension that we have to deal with. So you're seven years in this role now. Right? So and, and this moving two ways. On the one hand, uniformity. On the other hand, diversification. Also when it comes to beauty standards, to color, to sizes, etc. In those seven years, and I have no study to prove it right or wrong. I'm just... I'm just curious about your sense. Do you think in those seven years, the average self-esteem of young women has increased or decreased? And I'm not talking about L'Oreal's role. I'm just talking about what's happening in the world. I think it has been a roller coaster. I think it has started to decrease first. And I think that platforms like Instagram were not helping, to be honest. And I love Instagram. I've, I've spent and I still spend a lot of time on Instagram, but... Instagram pre-stories and pre-reels and pre-stories. The moment where it was like a little bit of a, of a digitalized Vogue magazine, right? Where everybody uh, was uh, again uh, swimming in an ocean of sameness of avocado toast and pink, uh, pink backgrounds. Yeah. We have, we've had that time. <laughs> and I think it showed something. You know, I was born in Bulgaria and in, in Bulgaria, we were seeing like it was a little bit undercover, but some people had access to a series like Dallas, you know. Dallas, the the thing. Dallas, yes. And everybody was like, oh my God, like that's life in the Western world. It's so cool. Look at the houses and everything. It was a little bit that Dallas moment for for Instagram. Everybody was like, oh my God, look at the life they will have. Of course, it was a a massive lie and, and, and not a massive lie. It was a massive fabrication. And I think at that time, especially the younger generation who are so much into the power of the immediacy of an image, I think, and and I don't have data points, but I think and I feel that it has really uh, maybe caused people to struggle uh, with their own lives, with their own sense of value. But I think that the evolution of the platform is very interesting because when you look at, again, stories, reels, TikTok, you see that the content is completely changing. The content is becoming more entertainment, more self self-joking or, yeah. or yes, this second... Uh, this distanciation between like the perfect image and the reality. I think the platform got a zeitgeist, and this is why TikTok is so strong, a zeitgeist of authenticity and of like, yeah, that's me. And that's me in my real life. And that's me making stupid jokes and stupid dance movements. And I'm fine with it. And I think it's gonna, it's gonna go up. Well, that's, that's, that's good to hear. And by the way, I, I totally recognize what you're saying. If a marketer works in an organization where there's a chief digital officer, what is the, the thing that marketing shouldn't involve itself with, the CDO should? And what are things the chief digital officer shouldn't do because marketing does that? That's a, that's a good question. I think, you know, what is true in marketing is true for many other functions of the, of the company. I say that, I often say that digital is the mother, the digital transformation is the mother of all transformation. It's not because I'm doing it. It's because behind the digital transformation, there is a consumer transformation. And it's because those new platforms have started to create an, a world where everybody could become a creator, where everybody has a voice in a debate, 
where everybody can can advocate or sell your product like social commerce is becoming a big thing and social commerce is nothing else than the door-to-door you know model reinvented to a to a new generation my mom could start a live streaming i mean if she's good at selling beauty she could start a live streaming stream you know on, on instagram and sell beauty this is the historical thing of the internet is that it horizontalizes everything and it gives access to to everyone to everything and so this is why the digital transformation is not a technology transformation but it's a transformation that is transforming the way people do pretty much everything and not only the tools for people to do things but the way they do things the way they date has nothing to do i mean it's the same big thing you have to find a mate but the way it's done it's not the same the way you shop the way you discover brands the way you 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 experience banking everything has changed remaining the same but has changed and so it's the same thing with marketing and I think the purpose and the mission of the marketing remains exactly the same, which is number one, to be the voice of the consumer within the company. Uh, number two, to, to understand the needs of, of those consumers and, and to create the best world class products or, or services. And number three, to create the best experiences from, from a visual to a shopping experience around, around those products. The way it's done is different. So I think that every marketer should really understand uh, digital. I think every marketer should become digital because in China today, in L'Oreal, 95% of our medias are invested in digital. 95% of our content are digital. Of course, that's China and that's extreme, but it's coming pretty much everywhere because people are spending and consumers are spending a lot of their time there. Is it fair to say that ultimately marketing and digital completely melt into one and you don't ever see it? the CMO and whilst there still is a CDO and a CMO you have to create full interdependence I don't know if there will still be a CDO and a CMO in the long no, run no no I'm not sure as long as there will be uh, better be interdependent uh, uh, as long as it will be maybe absolutely maybe be interdependent the thing is marketing remains the same it's the way it's done and this is the why the what and the how the why remains the marketing, right? But the what and the how is changing. So how, it's really for a marketer today, it's how he can, how she or he can tap into the what and the how knowledge of, of the digital people and upskill them into the, the traditional business of, of, of the marketing. But I, I'm personally convinced that one day you will, you won't need a CDO anymore because it, it will have done its role, which is it would have fulfilled its role, which is to transform the way marketing is done. With that, Lubomira, I want to thank you very much. I could have gone on for hours, completely testified to what Alex said. Uh, you're not only an inspiring and visionary leader, but more than anything, I felt and I feel now a very, very personable and, and, and human leader. Thank, thank you. you very much for joining us. I wish you the very best. And to all the viewers, thank you for being here with us and see you in a couple of weeks. Thank you, Frank. Thank you, everyone. Bye-bye.